morning. We are going to continue on in Acts. Let's start with a, just an acknowledgement that um, we have our, our, our puppy Zoe, and she has a favorite person in the family, and it's not me. It's Karen. And, and we've soon found out that Zoe's favorite place to be in the house is wherever Karen is. And so if she's in the kitchen, then she's begging for scraps. And if she's in the living room, then Zoe will find a place on the couch. And if she's doing a puzzle or something in the dining room, then she will curl up on the floor. Or if she's in the bedroom, then she'll take a place on the bed. She follows Karen wherever Karen goes. And again, not me. We have an understanding, Zoe and I. That's as much as can be said. Now, this is it's not the best analogy, because we're, we're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And of course, the type of following we have of Jesus, what Jesus invites us into is, is, is a relationship. It is not like a dog following an owner. This is something that's personal and intimate and meaningful. And yet, I think there is something to be learned from this almost single-minded devotion about are we, are we really following Jesus to that extent? Do we desire to be where he is more than any other place? Do we desire to do what he would have us do uh, above and beyond any other action? Would, do we desire to, to be as he would be in any given moment? Those are good questions to ask. And, and this notion of following Jesus with that level of devotion is important to all of us as Christians, and in particular here at Stony Brook Fellowship. It's a part of our mission statement. This is what we have declared together as a family is really the, the desired outcome of, of why we're doing all that we are doing. So whether you are, are new or whether you've been here a long time, it's always good to remind us of the mission that we're on. Our statement reads this way, Stony Brook Fellowship is a spiritual family that encourages the underchurched and overchurched to live as devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. And we want this to be more than just a statement. We don't want this just to be words that we can put up on a screen or print in bulletins. We want this to be true at the very core of who we are, for you individually and for us as a church. And so with this goal in mind, we have a tremendous example in front of us of what it looks like to follow Jesus with this kind of devotion in the person of Stephen. And in Acts chapter 6, we learn a little bit about Stephen. At the outset of that chapter, we learn that he is one, uh, along with six others that make up the seven who are chosen to serve and help the apostles. So the church is growing at a rapid rate, and the apostles have been uniquely gifted in, in their leadership of this church, but they are getting bogged down and they need help. They need support. And so we have these first seven, what we would call deacons, uh, in another leadership role to help them with this ministry. And as Stephen is carrying out his service, we also know that he is performing signs and wonders, and he's preaching the good news of Jesus, in particular to Greek-speaking Jews. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, this teaching proves inflammatory. And we have an extreme situation where the devotion of Stephen as a follower of Jesus is truly going to be tested. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Acts chapter 6. This is a long story. We are going to go through it together, and we're going to read starting in verse 8 to verse 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So lots to unpack here about Stephen and this situation, but we know from the beginning that Stephen was full of grace and power during his ministry. And this power was coming from the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Spirit came upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. It is now indwelling all of those who believe in Jesus, and Stephen is no exception. And we see that he expresses the power of the Spirit in some ways that were familiar to us, what we have read so far in Acts. He is doing signs and wonders, much like what Peter and John did in healing the lame beggar. He's expressing it in usual ways. And now there's some new ways that we see this power of the Spirit at work. The Spirit gave Stephen great wisdom and the ability to debate which I think is an awesome spiritual gift, right? I mean, he was going into these synagogues and he was debating about the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of God, the nature of what it is true. And he's not only doing a good job, he's winning the argument. As Luke describes it in verse 10, his opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was a very powerful speaker. I think he had the truth on his side and the spirit was giving him the words that he needed in order to convince people about who Jesus really was. And the debate that Stephen was emphatically winning was with a group of Greek-speaking Jews called the freedmen, a group of of people who would have been in in slavery or bondage or servanthood uh, to the Roman Empire at some point. But this synagogue in particular was a gathering spot of of Greek-speaking Jews from all different parts of the Roman Empire. They had this in common, and so they congregated here, and it was this community that Stephen was entering into this debate with. But because they could not win the debate, they instigated what could be called a religious riot. Like the old adage goes, if you can't beat them, beat them join them, or discriminate against them, or speak falsely against them. They, they, were, they were tired of playing with the rules. They were now going to resort to dirty pool in order to win the day. Stephen was too convincing. The spirit and the truth was on his side. They needed to do something about it. And so they brought against him false witnesses and false allegations. Particularly, they accused him falsely of blasphemy. Ultimately, they stirred up the the hearts and and the emotions of these men. And they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, which was that ruling Jewish council. The same council that that um, Peter and John would have stood before, the same council that Jesus himself would have stood before during his trial. And there Stephen had to endure the false testimony of these witnesses. Well, what was the cause? What was the nature of this debate that would have been so inflammatory? What was Stephen doing? What was he arguing when he was winning this debate? Well, I think we learn some of the nature of this discussion from what he was accused of. In particular... They brought him to the council and said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so it seems to be pretty clear that Stephen is is, is carrying on teachings of Jesus related to the temple, what's referred to as the holy place, and the law, the Mosaic law, the law 
of the covenant. And so we have two issues here, and we have two issues that Jesus did speak clearly on. The first was the issue of the temple, and Jesus did challenge the traditional Jewish understanding of the temple. And this is um, uh, captured for us in Jesus' own trial in Mark 14, verses 56 to 58, where it says, For many bore false witness against him, being Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Do you notice some of the similarities? Jesus was teaching about his resurrection, saying, saying that the, the temple would be destroyed and then will be re- rebuilt again in three days, saying, I will die and then I will rise again three days from now. And that was his teaching that got him in trouble in front of the council, the Sanhedrin, when he was alive. And now Stephen is repeating this teaching, this true claim of Jesus, and he is facing the same accusations against the same governing body. But at the heart of this is a misunderstanding. Jesus was not referring only to the physical temple, but to his own body, his own resurrection. And at the heart of it, it truly was a claim of divinity because the temple signified the very presence of God. So for someone like Jesus to refer to himself and his body as the temple was to claim that he is the very presence of God. And so he did challenge the understanding of the temple. He was making claims of divinity. It got him in trouble and is getting Stephen in trouble too because he is reiterating those claims about Jesus. The second issue was the issue of the law and the customs of Moses. And differently from the temple, uh, Jesus did not want to abolish the law of Moses. This is also something that he taught. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read these words. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. So Jesus is clearly not trying to abolish the law, but he is trying to fulfill it. And what does that mean? Well, we get a sense of what that means from when he teaches, when we continue to read the Sermon on the Mount, where he will say things like, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say, even when you get angry in your heart, you have heard it said in the law and by those who are teaching the law, do not commit adultery. But I say, when you even look at someone else lustfully, You've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is, is, is bringing people back to the heart of the law. It had gotten so rule-oriented and so legalistic that it missed the point to begin with. And Jesus is bringing people back to the spirit and the heart of the law itself. And yet his fulfillment didn't stop with his teaching. He fulfilled the law in and of himself when he died on the cross for our sins completely fulfilling all the obligations of the law, reconciling us to God. So yes, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But you can see where devout Jews would have a hard time distinguishing between the two. And so Stephen finds himself before the Sanhedrin falsely accused. And then we have this last detail thrown in there by Luke, and it's a bit astounding. He says that his face was like the face of an angel. 
<laughs> and, uh, and I really don't know exactly what that means. If you know exactly what that means, you can tell me uh, after this. Well, one thing we do know is that whatever this was, it was outwardly visible to the entire ruling council. Everyone who looked at him could tell there was something different. And Luke would describe this difference as being or having the face of an angel. I would like to think that this is a sign of God's presence with Stephen. So we have some of these events in Scripture that could possibly connect this story. We have this experience with Moses when he went to the, to the top of Mount Sinai and met face-to-face with God and received the commandments, the, the initial law of Moses. And when he came down, his face was shining. In that instance, it was so bright that he had to veil himself so that people wouldn't have to avert their eyes. And in a similar way, when Jesus was, was walking during his ministry, he went and had his own mountaintop experience with, with the Heavenly Father, and then he was transfigured. His, his, his face was changed and was glorious because of that encounter with the presence of God. And so perhaps in a very real and significant way, Luke is reminding us that Stephen was full of the Spirit and had this special encounter with God to the point where it was changing his outward appearance. That would certainly be in line with the experience of Jesus and Moses on their mountaintop experiences. And so Stephen now, full of the Spirit, outwardly so, goes and gives a speech in his defense. He has been accused of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. And then he defends himself, and he uses many, many, many words to do so. (laughs) And I'm not going to read them all for you. You'll notice that we're, we're doing almost two full chapters worth of material in one go. I'm going to summarize and paraphrase this, this speech for you. you. You certainly can and even should go and read it for yourself. You can fact check me, make sure that I've got it under control. But I will give you my interpretation of Stephen's response. And, and I really do think that he uses a story and a long story to defend against both of these accusations, against the accusation of the temple and of the law. And he uses the story of God's covenant people to make his defense in both instances. He doesn't make necessarily a Christ-centered response. He talks about Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses and the Exodus. And he uses the story of God with his covenant people. It's a very Jewish response to a Jewish audience who is listening to him. And he wants more than anything to root the truth of Jesus into the old and true story of God with his people. But he does so talking about the temple and the law in particular. When it comes to the accusation of the temple, Stephen declares that it is the traditional Jewish understanding of the temple that is wrong because it's too narrow and it limits God. He does this by pointing to the story of God tabernacling with his people. At the the time of Moses, when the law was introduced, they built the tabernacle and God's presence rested in the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle. Later on, Solomon built the temple and then God's presence rested in the Holy of Holies in that temple. But in both instances, Stephen says, these were handmade buildings. And never, not once, did they truly limit God's presence. Because as David has declared in Psalm 11:4, all of creation is God's temple. This is uh, what uh, um, Stephen says in Acts 7, verses 48 and following, and it's quoted from Psalm 11:4. 4 
Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen says, when it comes to the temple, that is man-made. When it comes to creation, that is God-made. This is his temple. This is his footstool. The the, the temple that we have is just a, a broken and imperfect reflection of the heavenly throne room. That greater reality where God the Father is on the throne even now. God has never been limited to the temple. That is what Stephen is saying. You've got it wrong. You're thinking about it in a too narrow way. And when we combine Stephen's teaching with the rest of the truth of Scripture, we know that that Jesus is the temple, that his claim was true, that he came, as John said, and he tabernacled, he dwelt with us. He is God's presence made manifest. And then now, according to the understanding of Peter, as we learned a few weeks ago, the church is the temple of God. And the Spirit has come to reside. God's presence is with the church in a unique and powerful way. And lastly, as we look forward to Revelation, uh, at the end of all things, where this new heaven and new earth come to be, there will be no temple needed because God's presence will be everywhere perfectly. And he will be our God and we will be his people as it has always been the case. So Stephen is not throwing away the story of Israel. He is bringing it into the larger picture of who God has always been and what is true now in Jesus Christ. All part of God's plan from Moses to David to Solomon and now to Jesus. Don't think too small, says Stephen. And what about the accusation of the law? Well, Stephen defends himself again by tracking through the covenant history of Israel. He says God made a promise to Abraham and kept that promise through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then, and then in Moses and during the Exodus, God delivered his chosen people. And then he gave the law to Moses. And yet even while Moses was receiving this law, then the people turned and rejected Moses and rejected God and made Aaron build the golden calf. False worship. Idol worship was a part of the children of Israel from the very beginning. And this lack of loyalty to God and his law and his covenant resulted in the exile that the people had to endure. More than just telling a story, Stephen points to the failure of God's people to keep the covenant and keep the law. He says, who are you to judge throwing out the law? You have rejected Moses. You worshiped the golden calf. You were sent into exile, and now you are still resisting the Holy Spirit. In other words, the religious leaders have never gotten this right. And then Stephen turns the tables and makes an accusation of his own. And we'll read these words together in Acts 7, verses 51 to 55, to summarize his defense. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who were announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, being Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, you, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, a bit of advice. If you ever find yourself on trial for blasphemy in front of a group of people who could kill you, this is probably not the way to make your closing statement. (laughs) He did nothing to damp down the fiery emotion at stake. 
Stephen was uninterested in defending himself. He was interested in nothing more. You could say that he was devoted to speaking plainly the truth about Jesus Christ. And of course, this accusation does not go over well. The council and the crowd are enraged to the point, as Luke captures it, to the point of them grinding their teeth. Kind of way that my dog makes me feel sometimes, which is why she doesn't follow me everywhere. And in that moment, full of the Spirit, Stephen looks up. This is, I love this. I was talking uh, to, to Reg at small group about this, and he says this is one of his favorite parts of Scripture. But full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw it with his own eyes. Sometimes we will say that Stephen saw a vision, but I don't like that word because a vision seems to make it feel like Stephen saw something that wasn't actually there or saw something that isn't true, but it would one day be true. No, Stephen is having his, his moment just the way that, that John did on the island of Patmos with Revelation. Do you remember how we described that? We described what happened to John as being in the spirit the veil between the natural and the supernatural was pulled away and John got to see what was really real, what was actually true. At that moment, his eyes were opened. John didn't see a vision. He saw reality. Stephen didn't see a vision. He saw what was true and real. And both of them shared at the moment that they needed it most, the truth that God is on his throne. He is full of glory. He is on the throne of the universe and the Son of Man, Jesus, is at his right hand interceding for us. Stephen had what I can only believe to be the most encouraging vision of what is truly real in that moment. And then he decides to share (laughs) his vision with those who are already enraged at him. He says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Throughout this long and winding story, Stephen provides us our first example of what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ. Stephen has given us the example of what it looks like to follow Jesus in belief. Because belief is at the very heart of everything that's happened so far, is it not? That's what this entire debate is about. Stephen is coming and saying Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. He is the son of God in the temple himself. And those he is talking to, are rejecting those claims about Jesus. What do you believe? Not only does Stephen win the debate, but he clung to his firm belief in Jesus, even as it was about to cost him everything. He was unwavering in his belief and acknowledgement of Jesus. Something that I think Jesus himself anticipated in his own teaching and ministry. This is what Jesus says in Luke 12. And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Do you think Stephen is aware of this teaching? And then he sees the Son of Man sitting there and says, I know you'll keep your promise. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven Listen to what Jesus speaks years prior to this story. And when they bring you, 
before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this all came true for Stephen in that moment. He trusted in the words of Christ. He relied on the Spirit to give him the words to speak, words that were true and powerful. And he never backed down from what he believed about Jesus, even at great cost to himself. He followed Jesus in his belief. Now, what does it look like to follow Jesus in our belief today? Well, we need to, 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 to recognize that, that belief is where this all starts. Stephen, at one point, needed to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Savior for his sins. This belief was rejected by those who are now falsely accusing him. But what do you believe about Jesus? Not what do your parents say. Not what the pastor says. What do you believe about Jesus? That's where your faith journey begins. You believe and then you follow. But of course, we continue to follow in our belief. We never want to back down from that. And we need to recognize that we are fortunate that that today very few of us will, will be standing trial for what we believe, where our physical lives won't be at stake. But there are still some teachings of Jesus that our society finds hard to believe, that find, they find very offensive. For the Jewish audience in Stephen's day, it was the teaching of Jesus on the temple and on the law. But for us, it could be something like John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's too old-fashioned, says the world. That's obviously closed-minded. It would have to be false. But Jesus declares that this is true. It's life-giving and it's full of love. Will we stand firm in our belief as we follow Jesus? And it may not cost us our lives, but it often will cost us something. Depending on your situation, you may feel like you could get passed off for a promotion based on what you believe about Jesus and how outwardly you live it out. It's always social currency in the hallways of school, matters of faith. And for sure in the locker room of any sports team you find yourself on, are you willing to acknowledge Christ before men and women there? Are we always willing to acknowledge Jesus for who he is? After Stephen declares that he has seen this vision, he can see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, the anger of the council boils over. They lose their minds. They become a mob. and They take him out of the city and they stone him. And while their emotion has certainly got the best of them, they still believe they're doing the right thing. This is what the law demands in Deuteronomy 13. If anyone would blaspheme and seek to draw us away from the one true God, then you should take that person outside and stone them. At the very heart, the Jews believe they're doing what is right. And overseeing this event, this killing of Stephen, is a young man named Saul, a Jewish zealot in his own right, someone that becomes increasingly important to the rest of the story of Acts. But we still want to focus on Stephen personally because he does some very profound things in the last few minutes of his life. As he is being brutally executed, and it's not fun, to be stoned is literally to be pelted with stones until you die. Stephen continues in that moment to follow Jesus closely. In Acts 7, 60, we read, And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It should. 
Because that is exactly what Jesus himself did on the cross. As Jesus was getting the nails hammered into his hands and his feet, and as he was raised in humiliation and torture and about to die, he says in Luke 23 to 34, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So how closely is Stephen following Jesus? He's not just following him in his belief and his teaching. He's following him in forgiveness. And both of them have this capacity, what could only be a spirit-filled capacity, to actively forgive those who are putting them to death. Is there any higher form of forgiveness than that? Is there any higher form of forgiveness? Of course, Jesus did more than just forgive those uh, who were torturing him on the cross. He taught about this in Matthew 6, 14. We read these words. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that is a hard uh, little bit of scripture that deserves its own sermon. But put it this way. Forgiveness is vital to the follower of Jesus. Forgiveness is imperative. It's a non-negotiable. If you follow Jesus, if you're devoted to him, you have to be a person of forgiveness. It is required in the kingdom of God. And this forgiveness is a letting go. It's a letting go of bitterness. It's a letting go of hostility. It's a letting go of this need for things to be even and fair and to release that into the hands of the Heavenly Father who is the one true and perfect judge. That is the type of forgiveness that Jesus modeled, that Stephen modeled, and I'm talking about. It's not a forgiveness that necessarily means you reconcile a relationship with everybody. Jesus clearly didn't have the opportunity to be at right relationship with those who executed him. Neither was Stephen afforded that opportunity. But there was someone there, someone named Saul, who was an active part of putting Stephen to death. And Stephen forgave him, and the community of Christ forgave him. But it took a long time after Saul's conversion for them to truly believe that Saul was a safe person again. That forgiveness didn't mean that it was all just forgotten and behind them. It is a true letting go. So what I'm trying to say is this. If you're someone who is in an abusive or unsafe place, forgiveness does not require you to stay there. You can let go. You can give it to God. You cannot hold it against someone. And you can still ensure that you don't stay in a pattern of abuse. Forgiveness is a requirement always. But it doesn't mean we stay in unsafe situations. But if you are a follower of Christ, you and your life should be highlighted by forgiveness. Who in your life do you need to forgive today? There was one last lesson that Stephen gives us. Along with his cry for forgiveness, he also cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar to anybody here at all? It should. What did Jesus cry out on the cross in Luke 23, 46? Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Once again, Jesus, sorry, Stephen is profoundly and closely following the example of Jesus. He is devoted to him. Now there is a difference. Jesus committed his spirit to the Heavenly Father, and Stephen is committing his spirit to the Lord Jesus because he knows who Jesus is. He has seen him at the right hand of the Father. And through his actions and final words, Stephen shows us what it looks like to follow Jesus in death. And at this point, 
When he dies, he becomes the first known martyr of the church, the first of many to follow Jesus, even at the cost of their own life. And this marks an incredible shift in the early church's experience. Again, they they were preaching and they were spirit-empowered and they were growing exponentially. And they got in a little bit of trouble and their hand was slapped, but now blood had been shed. Now someone has died. Now the Jewish community had some zealots like Saul who wanted nothing more than to continue to persecute those who believed in the name of Jesus. The experience of the church was about to become much, much more difficult. Now, not many of us will be required to follow Jesus in death like, as a martyr like Stephen. But we should acknowledge that there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today that still face this possibility. And they need this courage. But living as a devoted follower of Jesus will cost you something. It has to cost you something. And are you willing to pay the cost? As the music team comes up, I want to share one final verse with you. In Luke 9, verse 23. One more teaching of Jesus that Stephen is living in accordance with. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. So when we follow Jesus unto death, for Stephen, it was physical death. For us, it should be the hallmarks of self-denial. Jesus is first. We are second. And that is a simple and profound truth of what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So let us follow him in our belief, our forgiveness, and let us follow him in daily dying to ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the teachings of your son Jesus. I thank you for uh, the belief that we are able to have in him. I thank you for the, the fact that when we do place our trust and belief in Jesus, we have your spirit within us. And just like Stephen, the spirit can abide in us and, and well up in us so that we have the words to say, we have wisdom and discernment that we have the courage to cling to our belief, that we have the ability to forgive anyone, that we have this ability to put ourselves to the side and live as devoted followers of you. God, may this be true in our life, not of our own doing, but of the work of your Spirit within us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.